Titus chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4, okay? To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Father, we thank you for uh, the word of God. We thank you that you have uh, breathed life into these pages. Uh, We thank you for Jesus, our King and our Savior and our Redeemer. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Christ, that you would soften our hearts to be ready to obey. Jesus, you are life, and we know that. And, and God, we want, we want life. So help us to pursue you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so if you're here last week, uh, we just looked at the greeting. Uh, last week, uh, Paul, Paul, when Paul gives a greeting, he really gives a greeting. And he kind of packs uh, his whole almost theology of life into his greeting. He, he tells who he is. He's a, a servant of God. This is verse 1, by the way. He's a servant of God. That's why he sees himself as a slave of God. He's a servant of God. He's an apostle. He's a sent one. Um, and then he, then he gives his mission or his purpose or his, his, his kind of role in life. And he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The, the thing that Paul has his sights on is building up faith in the people around him, in, in himself and in others around him. And he's going to do that uh, through, if you keep going there in, in verse 1, through the knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness. Okay, So through the knowledge of the scriptures which brings about a transformed life. That's what godliness is, right? So, so knowing the truth brings a transformed life. And, and then he, he gives the fuel or the kind of the, the motivation, the thing that drives him through hardship and struggle in this mission which is verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised. And so Paul sees this, this great, incredible, glorious thing coming in the future, and that drives his life forward, all right? So that, that's who he is, okay? And, and, and now who he's writing to is this young guy named Titus, okay? He and Titus served together in Crete. That's the island that he's writing to. They traveled through there, preached the gospel, the Holy Spirit worked, a whole bunch of people got saved in different towns and places. Paul leaves, he sends Titus back there, and he sends him back there with a couple of instructions, okay? Here's what Titus is supposed to do. So pick up here in in verse 5, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might, number one, put what remained in order, and number two, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, so those are kind of the, the two big 
objectives that Titus is supposed to get done in all these villages and towns and places that the Apostle Paul and he have traveled through and people have come to Christ and now they're believers and, and, and now Paul has sent Titus to do these things. Now, let's look at those real quickly. Two objectives here. Number one, put what remained in order. In other words, it's kind of an interesting phrase. It means straighten things out. <laughs> it means get things in order, fix what's broken, uh, Paul would not win people to Christ and then just leave them without spiritual care, without spiritual organization, without leadership. Uh, and, and, and so Titus is going to help them to organize the body of Christ. Now, now, how will the new believers, how will they be instructed in the scriptures? How, how are they going to learn to obey all that Jesus commanded? How are they going to gather for worship? How are they going to be cared for? How are they going to be on mission together? How are they going to make disciples or going to make other disciples? Well, notice that Paul, Paul isn't answering all that for them. He's saying, Timothy uh, or Titus, I want you to go there and I want you to put things in order, straighten things out, and appoint leaders, and those leaders are going to do that. And they're going to do that in their particular context. Because honestly, like how we gather, uh, how, how we, whether we have a Friday lunch thing where we ask people to come in and, and, and preach the gospel and invite their friends. See, that, that's, that's a contextual thing, right? They're probably not doing that in India. You know, that probably doesn't work in the, in the village in India where everybody leaves early in the morning to go out in and, and, and the rice fields and they don't get home till late at night. Some kind of lunch deal at the church makes zero sense, right? Uh, and so, so, so Paul, Paul is not answering all these questions about how do you be a church. He's saying, Titus, I want you to go and straighten things out and appoint leaders, and those leaders are going to do that. Right? So, so the, here, here's the, kind of the big push of this morning is the church needs leaders. Okay, The spiritual orphan is not God's plan for his people. We should not think we are fine without the spiritual care of other people. All right. Now, I think I need to press that because there's this movement in America really that is against that. Uh, there's this movement in America that says, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but I'm just not connected to anybody else. It's, it's just between me and God. I, I cannot tell you how against the New Testament that is. All right? I mean, Paul sends, sends Titus back to this island to do this one thing. He's like, you, man, you got you to set up leadership. There, there needs to be small group leaders. There needs to be yeah, pastors. There, there needs to be people taking care of other people in the Lord. And Paul, Paul thought of this himself. Like, like even notice verse 4, the way he talks about Titus. He says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. All right? Now, maybe you don't know a lot about the Bible, but Titus is not Paul's kid. Okay? He's not his biological kid. Uh, but this is the way that Paul talks about people that he is caring for spiritually. People that he's one to Jesus. All right? He calls them his true children in the faith. He talks that way about Timothy, if you, if you read the epistles to Timothy. Uh, I mean, here's kind of a basic principle of the, of, the, of the Bible. We are to be multipliers. Do you know what the first command in the Bible is? If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and God creates the heavens and the earth, and it's all good, and he creates Adam and Eve, and he sets them in the garden. You know the first thing he says to them? He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, okay? There is a command. Guys, get married and have a bunch of babies, all right? Like, fill the earth. Fill the earth with image bearers. If you get kind of the theology behind that, man is the image bearer of God. 
We are those who are reflecting the glory of God. And God says, all right, I want you to make a whole bunch of those. Make a whole bunch of those that are reflecting the glory of God. But you know the story of the Bible, how how man falls into sin and that image is cracked, right? And and so now what are we supposed to do? Well, I think we're still, still supposed to be fruitful and multiply and have a bunch of babies. But we're also supposed to be fruitful and multiply and make a bunch of disciples who are coming back into that image of God, who are reflecting the glory of God because of their new life in Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be multipliers, right? And so Paul thinks about life in terms of having spiritual children. Man, you should want this. You, you, I, I, I've, I struggle with people that don't want this. You, you should want a spiritual father in, their, in your life. I mean, I look back to Scott Carlson and uh, Matt Krebs and, and Kenny Qualls and just guys that from the beginning of my conversion were in my life, and I just latched onto them. I was like, all right, teach me everything you know. Uh, well, everything you know about following Jesus, I, I, I want to know that. Like, like I, I want to I look at your life. I, I remember studying Kenny Qualls. I remember studying how he treated his wife. I, I remember seeing the stark contrast in how Kenny talked about his wife in the way that I, as a, a 19-year-old, newly married guy, talked about my wife. I remember sitting in his living room thinking, I don't do that. Like, but, but I, I wanted a spiritual dad. Ladies, you should want a spiritual mom. Like, like we should want that in our lives. Notice verse 5 is really clear. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. I, I, I don't want to belabor this, but why every town? Well, I mean, why can't Paul just be everybody's spiritual, you know, father and, and just write really awesome letters and, and that's good enough? And, and, and in a way, a lot of people are asking that question right now. They're saying, hey, I, my spiritual leaders are all on YouTube, you know? And, and, and my small group's incredible. It's on Instagram. And, and I got people from Zambia and Tasmania and Korea and, and, and Russia. And, and man, my, my group's incredible. None of them know me. You know, None of them see me screaming at my kids on Wednesday night at the soccer field. But my group's awesome, you know. Hey, that, that's not the way Paul has designed this thing. The scripture has designed this thing. Jesus has designed this thing. There seems to be something local and personal and being known about someone who's your spiritual leader that is incredibly important in your development. Notice the instructions that, that Paul gives to Titus concerning these spiritual leaders. Uh, I, th- I think this is beautiful. Just, just look at this from a big picture, okay? So, so he says, appoint leaders, so go, go in there, you know, straighten things out and, and get, make sure there's spiritual leaders in every town to take care of people. And, and then he then he says, and, and here's what you should look for. And, and isn't it interesting that he doesn't, what, what I would expect is he would say, look for skills. You know, I mean, that's kind of what I would expect. I, I would expect you to say, hey, Tim, Titus, go, go in there and, and look for people that are really good communicators and uh, have a real natural charisma. Maybe look for some, some folks that have like some business skills or some really high people skills. That is not at all what he says, is it? Like, like, look at those qualifications. None of them really, maybe at the end, next week, at the end of the passage, we'll talk about, about, uh, about the word, but none of them really do with skills. They all do have to do with Christ-like character. Isn't that great? They all have to do with the condition of a, of a man's heart, with this practical living out the word of God in his own family, 
and in his relationships and in his daily life. It's really all about his character. Those things are definitely, skills are definitely used by God, absolutely. But, but, But Paul tells Titus, look for a guy whose life has been transformed by the gospel. You see, having leaders who look like Jesus is clearly more important to Paul than how those leaders speak or how they're organized or what kind of skills they have in life. And so Paul tells Titus, appoint elders. Now, what's an elder? Well, in, in a general sense, it's an old guy, okay? Uh, I mean, that's, that's the way it's used in, in, in the scriptures, and that's also the way it is used today. Okay, but, but really, what, what it came to be seen as in the church was not, not just an older guy, but it came to be used as a guy who was older and mature and, and solid in his faith, a spiritual father kind of figure, okay? Now, now when you look at this passage, I, I think it's interesting that, that several different words are used, okay? So you also have the word overseer used. That's in verse 7. Uh, and it's used synonymous with elder. So he says in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward um, must be above reproach. So you got, you got God's steward, you got overseer, and you got the word elder all being used in the same way. If you, if you look at 1 Timothy 5.17, it speaks of, of elders, uh, some of whom have a more leadership role, some of whom have a more preaching and teaching role. First, First Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So it would seem that, that there's some spiritual leaders that, that are more kind of the, the spiritual wise sages, uh, counselors, wisdom-oriented guys. There's others that are more kind of preacher, teacher kind of people, but, but, but they're, they're leaders in the church. Acts 20, I want to add that in because that, that's an interesting uh, passage to me verse to me in this whole discussion because in Acts 20, 28, uh, Paul says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there's that word that's used in Titus here. And then he says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I, I wish the ESV wouldn't have done what they just did there. They, they translated the word shepherd to care for, which I, I see why they did, because the word shepherd means to care for, right? Like that, that's what a shepherd does is he, he watches out for a flock. He, he cares for a flock. He feeds and, and, and nurtures and and protects a flock. And, and, and that's why the Bible began to use the word shepherd to, for the word pastor. That, that's really what the word pastor has come to mean. But what I want you to see there is that in Acts 20, 28, overseer and shepherd are used in the, for the same guy, okay? So let's put all that together, what we just learned, okay? So the word elder and the word overseer are used interchangeably. The word overseer and shepherd are used interchangeably. So in other words, an elder, an overseer, a shepherd, and God's steward, those are all used in the passages we just looked at, are, 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 are all used for these spiritual leaders that Paul is describing, okay? Now, before we get into these um, characteristics, okay, I, I want to answer this question. Are these just for leaders, Okay. So I really think a lot of you will do what I think that you're tempted to do, and you'll say, I don't want to be a leader, so uh, I'm going to play uh, my dot game on my phone, you know, for the rest of the, of the time. Uh, please don't do that. Um, 
Absolutely not. It, it is ridiculous to think that God's will for leaders is somehow different than his will for everybody else. It, it's not. Leaders are simply supposed to be guys who, who are actually living out the gospel that's being taught. They're, they're, they're people that you can look at and say, okay, this is what that looks like. This is what the word of God looks like in, in real life, in a family, in a marriage, in, in a relationship, in a conflict. This, this is what the word of God looks like when you put flesh on it, all right? I mean, it's, it's ludicrous to think that, you know, well, God's will for a, 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 a leader is that he'd be a husband and one wife, you know, but the rest of you guys, well, yeah, man, just go after it, you know? I mean, God doesn't care. Uh, it's ridiculous to think, well, God's, God's will for a leader is that he not be quick-tempered, but the rest of you, you be hotheads, you know? Uh, keep your gun handy and, 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 you know, fire away, you know? No, absolutely not. Okay, so, so all of these characteristics that we're talking about are the will of God for all of God's people. Now, why, why is it so important that a leader lives the qualities that he teaches? Well, a couple big reasons. First of all, your life instructs, okay? The way a person lives their life actually makes disciples. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 it, it is a super interesting verse. It says um, this, it says, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Okay? Set the believers an example. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, uh, Paul talks about, about, about the Word of God and, and imitation of his own life. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. I mean, Paul is basically saying, look, we are following the Word of God. We're following Jesus, and so it would be helpful for you to look at our life because we're following Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13, I love this. Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the Word of God to you. By the way, I think that's a great definition of a leader, okay? It's somebody who speaks the Word of God to you. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great strategy for how can you be a leader. Well, speak the word of God to somebody. I mean, that, that, that's how we lead in the spiritual life. So, so remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. And then look at this. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I, I, I love that. Consider the outcome of, the, of their way of life. Not just consider how they live, but how is how they've lived, what's that produced in their life? Man, I, I, that, that's a beautiful concept. In other words, look at the spiritual leaders in your life and look at, okay, how, how is their living out the word of God in their marriage? What's that produced in their marriage? How is their living out the word of God in their parenting? What's that produced in their parenting? How is their living out the word of God in their relationships? What is that produced in their relationships? In other words, watch their way of life and then imitate it. I love that Paul invites people to do that. And I think that's something that most of us would be hesitant to do. Hey, guys, watch me. <laughs> I mean, it seems prideful, right? Unless I'm just following Jesus. I'm just following the word of God. And then you actually should do that. You, you should tell your kids that. Hey, guys, someone just cut us off in traffic. Watch how I handle this. Imitate me. I'm going to do just what Jesus would do. You guys watch me. Yeah. Folks, if you are angry and prideful and violent and neglectful, I don't care what you're saying with your mouth or how eloquent you explain doctrinal principles, you will not lead people to Jesus. Now, you may lead them, but you're not going to lead them to Jesus. People need to see truth lived 
out, okay? This is another reason that you need leaders that you know, okay? I mean, I have all kinds of people that, that I love to read and I love to watch, uh, watch videos on, but, but if, if I don't know them, if I don't see their life, they don't see my life, it's really hard for them to actually be a spiritual leader for me. People need to see the truth lived out in you. Listen to this quote by Richard Baxter. He is one of my favorite pastors of, of the Puritan area. He, here's what he said. He said, take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine. Lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. Man, this, this, this is heavy. One proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action, may cut the throat of many a sermon and blast the fruit of all that you've been doing. Let your lives condemn sin and persuade men to duty. Man, that, that one, one word can undo a whole bunch of stuff. That, that is a heavy thing to me. Man, I feel that. I, I feel that reality that, that, that one, one public failure in my life could undo decades of, of labor for the Lord. Uh, man, that's heavy. And, and it ought to check the way that we live. When the truth is believed, a person's life will be changed. That, that's what we learned in, in, in last week in Titus 1.1. The knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Knowledge of the truth leads to a godly life, okay? So, so truth believed it, it, it is life changing. And so if a leader's life is not changed, it means he really doesn't probably believe the truth that he proclaims. Man, I, I, I told you this last week. I mean, I think there's some unique things about our culture right now that maybe have never happened in the history of the world. And one thing is really clear is that truth is under attack in our culture. Lies permeate our culture. And many of us, many of you, want to stand against those lies by proclaiming truth. But man, here is the tricky part. If we proclaim truth while living lives of greed, anger, violence, impurity, or arrogance, we undermine the truth. Man, I, I, I think I'm seeing that in the church today. I'm seeing people say right things with their mouth in an angry, violent, arrogant way and completely neutralize their Christ-exalting motives. Your life desperately matters. That, that's what Titus is saying here. He's saying, when you look for a leader, look for these things, and they're all about the guy's character. Why? Because your life matters. It matters. And, and by the way, I, I, I actually think it works the other way too. So I, I just showed you it working that way. I actually think it works the other way. I, I, I think actually when you live in rebellion against God, it actually distorts your ability to know the truth. So what I just told you was that, that, that if, you, if, you, if you're proclaiming the truth, but you're not living it, it, it neutralizes your proclamation of the truth. But I, I think it's the other way too. I think when you're living in sin and rebellion, you actually hinder your ability to see the truth. Can, can I show you that? Uh, I, I know that's not what the sermon is about, but uh, let me show it to you in a couple places. Ephesians 4.18 says this. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Wait, did, did you see that? It, it says they're darkened in their understanding because of the hardness of their heart. Let me show it to you again. Romans 1. 
Uh, Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. Look at verse 21. Uh, down a couple verses there. Um, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I mean, what all three of those say is basically when you live in rebellion against God, you actually kind of cripple your mind from understanding the truth. I mean, that makes, that makes the world make a lot of sense, doesn't it? A ton of sense, right? Like, 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 like people that are living in rebellion against God, they're, they're, the, the truth will be distorted in their minds. So it's crucial that a person's life matches their teaching. All right, so let, let's, let's look at the, at the characteristics here. And by the way, we're only going to hit a couple of them today, and everything else will be next week, okay? Um, so let's start, let's start back in uh, verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. We're going to look at those three today, okay? So the first one, uh, if a person is above reproach, okay? Now, it's a word that means blameless. It's a word that means that, like, you are, you're innocent of an accusation, or you can't be, nothing can be proven on your life, uh, or accused and stick to you, basically. But, but here's the way we've always explained it at Lincoln Avenue. And, and I just can't think of a better way. I, I really rack my brain down. I need to be creative think of a better way. I, I just don't know that there is a better way. The, the best way that I understand this concept is, is this. If you drew a line up here on the stage and you said, this is the line of sin, okay? So here's where a man sins, all right? So whether it's in, in sexual immorality, whether it's in anger, whether it's in pride, whether it's in um, lying, whether it's in whatever, this is the line of sin, okay? Now, I, I think above reproach is simply this. It, it's simply that you not live right here, okay? So if this is the line, okay, uh, I'll put this cord right here, all right? So there's the line, okay, that you not live right here by the line, you know, because Jeff, from his vantage point, he can't see if I'm on the cord or if I'm on this side of the cord. He's too far away, okay? Now, if I'm living over here, okay, if that is, is lying and I'm over here, when Jeff looks, he can clearly see that I'm far away from the lie, right? I'm far away. So in other words, don't live so close to sin that people can't tell from afar whether you're in sin. In other words, live, live far away from it, okay? If it's sexual morality, don't, don't live so close where people are wondering, you know? It's like, man, they spend a lot of time together. Man, I see them in the car together. Man, hey, you know, do they work together? Or they, you know, don't, don't live that way. You know, Billy Graham used to say in regards to that, that he wouldn't enter an elevator with a woman unless there was somebody else in there. In other words, if he's on the elevator alone and a woman, the door's open and a woman gets in and it's just them two, he gets out. I mean, that's the way Billy Graham lived his life. How ridiculous is that? The guy had no intention of having a, and an affair or, or being in adultery. He loved his wife, had a great relationship to, with his wife the entire time they were married, but Billy Graham wanted to live over here. You know, so he's far away from it, which is sort of what it means to be above reproach. Now, it, it's, not, it's not saying that you can't or that you won't ever be accused of anything, okay? If, if you've read your Bible, you know that Jesus and Paul were accused of a whole bunch of stuff, right? Jesus was, his whole trial was a big sham, okay? But, but here's the deal, okay? If you're living for truth, you're liable to be hated and you're liable to be accused of things. But when you're living a life that's above reproach, nothing of it actually sticks, right? Because there's no truth in it. And you're living a life that's so far away from sin that people who, are, who know you, who are close to you, can clearly see that you are above 
reproach, okay? So above reproach is sort of uh, uh, an umbrella phrase that, that is over all of these qualities, okay? But let's, let's move to the next two, and both of these deal with a man's family, okay? Which is super insightful that when Paul says, Titus, go appoint leaders, the, the big things he starts with is how does this guy live in his own house, Okay, how does he live in his own family, all right? Beginning in verse six, if anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, okay? Literally a one-woman man. That, that's, that's the way the Greek reads, one-woman man, okay? I don't think he's talking about polygamy here, all right? I think a polygamy applies, okay? So if you were thinking about getting another wife, okay, go ahead and grab this today as the word of God and say, you know what, that's a bad idea, I'm not gonna do it, okay? But I don't think that's what he's talking about because I don't think that was an issue in Jesus' day. Not only do I not think it was an issue in Jesus' day, but if you go into 1 Timothy 5, it's talking about widows who ought to be taking care of the church, and it says, uh, you know, take care of a lady who is a one-man woman, okay? Now, I don't think there was a bunch of ladies back in Jesus' day who had a bunch of husbands, okay? I, did, I just, so I, I don't think that's, I don't, it applies, I don't think that's what he's talking about. Uh, I, I don't think he's talking about a, a, someone who, whose husband or wife has died, and, and, and they married again. I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible encourages that, okay? I don't think he's saying that a spiritual leader must be married. Some people have taken it from, you know, if you're going to be a spiritual leader, you got to be married. No, not at all. Paul was single. Jesus was single. In fact, singleness can be a great gift from God in order to give your life to the mission of God. Let, let me just pause right there and, and do a little, a little bit of a rabbit trail here. But I, I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 6, where he says, he, he talks about singleness as a gift. A lot of people think about singleness as a handicap in the Christian life. It is not at all a handicap. You know what it means? It means you have twice the amount of time to do the work of Jesus in the mission of God in the church and the world. I'm telling you, if I had no wife and no children, I would wear you guys out at your homes, okay? I, I'm just telling you, I would not spend any of my evenings at home by myself. I'd be at your house. And some of you know this because when my wife leaves, there's been a few times in the history of this church when my wife and kids left, I didn't cook a meal the whole time. I showed up at your house at six, you know? If you invited me to eat, great. If you didn't, I prayed for you, and we had a great conversation, and I went to the next one, you know? And it's not just for a meal, but, like, I want to be with you. Like, like I literally, like, what am I going to do, sit at home? by my, Like, I want to be with you. I want to be encouraging you. I wanna, and, and I think that's the great gift of singleness is, like, you have this opportunity to blow it out for the Lord. No kids? Empty nesters? Man, one of the... One of the killer things in the church today is people who have an empty nest feel like, well, this is my time to golf and play shuffleboard and get really good at solitaire. Man, that, that is such a waste of kingdom life. If you have no kids in the home, you know what that means? That means you wield your opportunity to multiply spiritual disciples. It doesn't mean you have more time to watch TV. It means you have more time to go. More time to be in people's lives. That's why it's a gift. That's why Paul says it's a gift. I think if you don't see that, then you don't see it as a gift. Anyway, at the heart of this qualification is that a man who is solely committed to his wife. Okay? So, 
So a spiritual leader should be a one-woman man. In other words, there is really only one woman in the world for him. Everybody else is dudes or daughters of the king. And, and man, I, I just want to give a little personal, and this is going to sound like I'm bragging. I am not. I am, I am uh, thankful for the grace of God. But man, I'm just thankful. I look back at my 20s, which is where a lot of guys struggle, you know, uh, a lot of married guys struggle. Man, I just did not because God, God in his, his grace and sovereignty, I was a brand new Christian, just jumped in the Christian life, brand new married. And literally, I, I, just, I remember, I, I just remember thinking, I mean, there, there was just one woman in the world, like just Emma. You know, and I actually, I can, I, I can think back and, and I remember thinking there's not very many pretty women in the world, you know, not, not compared to my wife, you know, I mean, I, I, I was just zero focused on her, you know, and, and just like she was and everybody else was like off limits. I, mean, I wasn't even really interested, you know, it was just her. And what an incredible gift that is. Now, I don't know that she would say it's a gift. I, I think I probably wore her out, you know, but, but like, I, man, I was just, I was z- zeroed in on her. It's a man who has only eyes for his wife, a man who zealously protects the exclusive affection and attention reserved only for his wife under the covenant of marriage. It's a man not given to lust or flirtation or immorality. It's a man who guards his eyes from looking at other women with lustful intention, who guards his eyes from digital pictures of women that gratify sexual desire. There is to be only one woman for the Christ-following married man. He is to love that woman as Christ loves the church. Now, if you're married, let me, let, me, let me warn you. I was reading a David Mathis article, and he used this little phrase. I thought, oh, that's good. He, he, he warned married Christian men, make sure you're not a zero woman man, okay? So, so maybe you're not a bunch of women man, but make sure you're not a guy that just like doesn't, doesn't cultivate a relationship, a Christ and the church relationship with the one woman that God's given him. The reason, one of the reasons this is so important is that marriage and sex represent pictures of the gospel i don't know if you knew that but but that's why they're created the bible is very clear about that marriage and sex are created to be a picture of jesus christ in his covenant relationship with his bride the church it's a it's a picture of an intimacy and a covenant commitment a always there for you never let you down nothing can separate his commitment of jesus and his bride the church which is why sexual morality is, is in the Bible, it's in a category by itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse uh, 18 and 19, it says this, Flee sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual and moral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you're not your own? I mean, that God created man and woman to have this one flesh union, this covenant relationship that typified the... The, the relationship of Jesus and his church. And it, it's a one flesh union that is, is, it's the only thing in creation that is that way. And, and, and so Paul says when you're messing with that, man, you're messing with serious things. And so first of all, the spiritual leader ought to be a guy who is cultivating a one woman relationship with his wife. Number two, verse six. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Believing children. Now, th- this, this one's difficult, okay? Um, because we don't want to get our theology wrong here and I don't want you to misunderstand what he's saying. 
First Timothy 3, 5 is going to clear this up for you in just a second, okay? But I, I don't think he is saying that somehow we as Christian parents have like the switch that we can throw on our children and just make them be believers. You know, that, that is not true. Um, that, that, that is not true at all. We, we, we're not able to do that, okay? What, what I think Paul is clearly doing here is he's saying, look at how this guy leads his children. Look at how he leads his house. Are, 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 is everybody out of control? Is everybody rebellious against God and authority? Are they living in open sin? Is the father not addressing it, okay? And, and, and here's where he's going with this. Good spiritual leadership, it begins in the home because the home is actually a microcosm of the church, okay? It's a microcosm of the church. The principles of shepherding and leading a church are the same as shepherding and leading a family. Let, let me show you that. First, first Timothy chapter 3 in verse 5 is another list of qualifications here. It's, it's really Paul doing the same thing for Timothy, but he just says it a little differently, which really helps us, okay? So he says in 1 Timothy 3, 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Okay? So let me read that again. Start up in verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? All right. So basically what he's saying here is that spiritually leading a family and spiritually leading a church are the same skill set. You see that? Like he's comparing the two. You know, he, he's basically saying, you know, hey, in, in order for a guy to get on this, this race motorcycle, make sure he can drive a scooter. Okay, like, like if he can't drive a scooter, don't put him on the, the race motorcycle, right? Like, like that, 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 that's sort of what he's saying, okay? He, he's saying the, the way a guy leads a church is going to be the way, you, know, you look at how he leads his family. The church is the family of God, okay? So a man is to oversee his family, and then if, if he does a good job there, if he's got the skills, if he's serious about that, then he'll probably do a good job leading the family of God, being a spiritual father in the church. So, so spiritually leading a church is, is probably, it's a more difficult thing than spiritually leading a family, so that, that's why he uses this as a test. And so it would be questions like this. Is this guy gospeling his kids? Like, like it's kind of silly to think he's gonna be successful in gospeling guys at the church if he doesn't gospel his kids. Is he training his children in solid doctrine? Is he, is he leaving his children a good example to follow? Is, is he influencing his kids for Christ. Let's go the other way. Is he domineering in his home? Is he a tyrant? Well, if he is, he's probably going to be that in the church too, right? Does he neglect his responsibilities? Here, here's the great thorn in all of us guys, right? Like, like if we have a tendency, guys, I, it's back to the garden, you know? You know, Satan's talking to Eve. What's Adam doing? He's in his recliner with Cheetos watching ESPN, like, or whatever he was doing. But he was not engaging in his responsibility, okay? I, th I think it's the great failure of men that we don't engage, all right? So, so ask, does he neglect his responsibilities? D does he not engage his children in faith? Does he not lead the family in prayer? Does he not confront sin and call for repentance? Is he neglectful in these things? And there's two glaring examples of this in Scripture. We don't have time to, to look at them both, but, but two, two Old Testament examples. One is Eli. Eli's sons just went off the rails. They were priests, and Eli was over them. He, he was their authority. And they were doing terrible things in the temple, and Eli wouldn't confront them. He wouldn't, he wouldn't stop them. And God's judgment came down upon them. verse that always haunts me is 
1 Kings 1, David in his old age just was not the leader he was in his younger years. And 1 Kings 1, 6, by the way, which if you're an old parent in here like I am, you know how hard that is, okay? Um, you, you know that, that when you're 19, raising a baby, it's different than when you're 49, raising a little kid, all right? We get tired, okay? 1 Kings 1, 6, pray for me. I have a long way to go, okay? 1 Kings 1, 6. Well, let me read five. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Verse six, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done this and so? His dad just never confronted him. His dad didn't engage. When his dad did bad things, he just didn't do anything. Again, Obviously, guys, a parent cannot force faith on a child. A parent can't save a child, okay? But Paul's looking at the big picture here. He's looking at this reality that a man has authority over his children. He has great opportunity with his children. Great opportunity. There are guys in this town that when I say, hey, let me, let me read you a Bible story. They say, I don't have time, or you're weird, or get, get out of here, okay? There is one guy in this town that when I say, let me read you a Bible study, Bible story, he has to listen, and he always will listen. And if he doesn't listen, he gets a spanking. <laughs> it's because he's six. His name's Asher. He's got to listen. Isn't that beautiful? And you know the wonderful thing how God created this? He wants to. Like he wants to. Like he's revved up for that. We use his little, we got a new little little comic book Bible that we use. He kind of digs that. That's what we switched to this year. He likes it. What an opportunity. Great influence. What are you doing with that? Obviously, when looking at this passage, we should take into account men who maybe were saved after their kids were grown or were saved when their kids were teenagers and getting ready to leave the house. One of the big questions in this that I, I probably don't have time to fully answer is, well, what, what do you do when a leader's kids do rebel? You guys should probably know that. But what should you do if my kids are off the rails? Here's what I think you should do. I, I think the leaders in this church should come to me and say, man, Jason, how can we help? And they should, we should pray, and they should give me counsel, and then they should watch to see if I carry out that counsel. If I do not, then probably they should go to the next step. They should get more serious. If I do listen, then they should walk hand in hand with me. And, and actually, like many of you probably don't know this, but versions of that have happened. Like our oldest daughter was going in a slight misdirection uh, around her senior year of high school. And we, we, him and I would come down like a fury, you know. And she would tell the story if she were here, actually. And she was not receiving it well. And, and we, we called in reinforcements. Nobody had to come to us. We went to other people. I, I want leadership in my life. Man, if you look at my life, I surround myself with guys who, who are good men who will help me. And, and they did. 
I, I can tell you a story where Em and I were out of town, and man, we somebody else was watching out for us, and we we were coordinating, we were parenting via phone, you know, through another couple in this church. And God redeemed that situation in an incredibly beautiful way. My oldest daughter married the best guy that I could ever imagine, like better than I could have ever asked for. And they're getting ready. Do you guys know they're getting ready to have a baby? Little Junior coming here in two weeks. I'm going to be a Gramps. Y'all call me Pastor Gramps here in a couple weeks, okay? Man, this is exciting that there's this assumption here that if a man lives out the gospel in his home, if he is intentionally and prayerfully seeking to make disciples of his children, there is an assumption that he will have great influence on their lives. That's embedded in this text. Man, parents, I want that to excite you. I want it to motivate you. I want it to make you say, man, I need to seize that now. Seize the day. Men, we are to lead our families. I was challenged the other day. I was in one of my discipleship groups, and I was asking the guys. I, I, I have questions. I like to just pop out there and ask them. And, and some of them have been in the, the group so long that they're getting to ask over and over and over and over and over again, you know. And I think it wears on them a little bit. But, but one of the most popular questions, I don't do it every week, but one of the most popular questions I like to ask is, are you praying with your wife? And, and I love I love this guy, and I, I love that he did this. I, I want you guys to do this. I, I invite you to do this. But one of the guys in my group said, show me that in the scriptures, Pastor. Show me where I'm supposed to pray for my wife. Uh, this guy knows the scriptures, so I know he knows it's not there, right? And so, like, and I appreciate that. Like, okay, I, I, I actually can't show you a verse that says, thou shalt pray with thy wife, okay? That's not there. Okay, it's not there. But you know what is there? What is there is this. This is there, right? Like, like this is there. How a man manages his house is how a man will manage the church, okay? And how a spiritual leader manages the church is how he's to manage his family. And so I would ask the question, should a pastor pray with his people? I can answer that for you. That one I can answer, okay? That one I can, I can take you places. I can take you to 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, verse 8. Um, that says this. It's, that's not the right verse. Uh, oh, I'm in Thessalonians. Oh, when you're in the wrong book, it looks different and you, you get disoriented real quick. All right, First Timothy 2.8. I desire then that at every place the men should pray. In every place, in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In James chapter 5, James chapter 5 verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Okay, now here's what I would ask you. Is Emma in... Is she, is she one of the one another's? Is Emma one of the one another's? I would not only say she's one of the one another's, I would say she's the first one another, okay? Like, I think when you live out the gospel, you live it out to those closest to you first. Who's the closest person to me in this life? My wife. She's first in line. Verse 14, there's several here in this passage, actually. Let me just read this one to you. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when people are sick, Spiritual leaders are to do what? Go and pray over, over, out loud, over them. Does that apply to Emma? It it applies to Emma. So, guys, we should lead our families. So there's a place to start, isn't it? 
like uh, I, we're going to face the rest of these next week, but, but here's a place to start. Your life matters, okay? Not just what you say. A lot of you believe the right things, but I would just press you this morning. Does your life visibly show that you believe those things? Let's not despair if it doesn't. Let's fix it. I, I, I don't like those applications where it's like, no, it doesn't. I quit, you know? Hey, that's, that's not obeying, okay? That's, that's not obeying, okay? The right application is, yeah, no, that, that, one's, that one's deficient. And by golly, we're going to pray here in just a second, and I'm going to come to Jesus, and I'm going to repent, and we're going to fix it right now. That's the right thing. That's what your Father in heaven wants you to do. Okay? When I, when I tell my kids, hey, you didn't pick up your shoes, and they're like, you're right, I quit. I'm never trying again, okay? They just need a spanking, okay? Because the right answer is, I'm sorry, Dad. I'll get right on it. Right now, I will pick up my shoes, and I will, that, that's the right answer. Well, if your heavenly Father has pointed out something to you, yes, Lord, right now. So let's, let's right now. Father, we, we ask for help, God. We ask that our lives would, would show, would display, would demonstrate um, the truth of your word um, clearly in us and through us. And my Father in heaven, I, I pray that you give us power, God, power to lead, power to multiply, power to make disciples who would make disciples, to be fruitful. God, I, I pray that you would enable us to lead our families well. God, I pray for parents in this room whose hearts are broken over children who don't believe. God, I pray that you would show them how to magnify their influence, what, whatever, whatever age that child is. God, show them how to magnify their influence. God, I pray that you would bring prayer partners with them, God, to engage the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. God, I pray for husbands whose, whose relationships with their wives is not what it ought to be. I pray for wives whose relationship with their husbands is not what it ought to be. God, I pray that that might, that might be repaired and repented of, and Lord, that we might move toward that beautiful picture of Christ in the church this morning. Father, help us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.